This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Luke-Henrique Gomez from The Guardian Australia joined me in the studio to discuss what we've gleaned so far from the Disability Royal Commission hearings. He also gave us an update on robo-debt and welfare policy. Then, natural historian, ecologist and environmental photographer Alison Puglio joined me in the studio to talk all about her extraordinary life travelling the globe to capture and study all kinds of fungi. Alison believes we need to care about the conservation of fungi as much as any other living organism. Her book, The Allure of Fungi, is out through CSIRO Publishing. Then, finally, Nick Parry, a PhD candidate at the Australia-German Climate and Energy College based at the University of Melbourne, joined me in the studio to talk about his new article, We Explore European Union and Australia Relations their differing climate and energy policies, as well as how these policies affect diplomatic relations and how they also may affect future trade agreements. And now for my first interview, uh, I'm very happy to welcome back into the studio Luke Enriquez-Gomes, who has come in to talk all about well, many things, welfare, federal politics, disability royal commission, so many things, and I'm really excited to talk about it. So hi, Luke, and thank you for coming in again. Hi, Amy. It's good to be back here. It's wonderful to have the chance to chat about these issues, which are ongoing and really important to people's everyday lives, um, and some people more so than others. And I think it's important to highlight some of the things that we may not think about and may not have to deal with, but others find stressful every, every day. I must say it's um, it's always great that you have uh, me on to talk about these issues because, um, as we might talk about in a minute, sort of they are issues which aren't covered too much in the media, but you know affect hundreds of thousands of people. Um, so. I'm just grateful to you that we are able to talk about them. Well, let's get into it then, and thank you for that. Um, so first up, there's um, maybe we'll just touch on the Disability Royal Commission, which I am only kind of getting most of my news apart from a few sporadic news pieces from the Twitter feed of the Disability Royal Commission, and there are a couple of great not-for-profits tweeting out and live-tweeting these sessions so that we have an idea of some of the subject matter that they're covering. Um, and one of the areas that you highlighted and did a kind of overall roundup of um, from the weekend was uh, about people who had... Um, cognitive disabilities and their experiences navigating the healthcare system, in particular hospitals. Uh, And there were some pretty harrowing stories, um, not just about the people who are directly affected, like as in the people who have a a cognitive disability and or a physical disability, but also their carers, particularly um, their mothers. And so I'm really interested in what we have already kind of gleaned just from some of those um, stories that you've captured in your piece. Um, I think firstly, just give a shout out to um, people with Disability Australia and um, the Council for Intellectual Disability, who I think are the groups that you were mentioning, yes. who have been doing a great job um, live tweeting um, the uh, Commission's hearings over the um, past week. Um, and that's continuing again uh, this week in Sydney. As you said, it is about, um, I guess, the experiences um, in the health system of people with cognitive disabilities. Um, and like you said, it's 
it's been really um i think in some cases quite desperately sad to be honest um um quite a few of the witnesses um um mostly mothers whose children um have had awful experiences in the health system um have been uh you know basically choking back tears as as they've talked about um what they've gone through um my piece um was as you said a bit of a wrap of the evidence um, that was um, given last week, um, one of the, uh, I think, the story sort of focused on R- Rachel Brown, whose son Finlay um, ended up passing away. Um, but the her evidence was about the way that throughout his life she just felt as if he, he wasn't taken um, seriously and given the, the care that somebody without a cognitive disability would receive. Um and that, I guess, culminated, uh, you know, in one night where she took um, Finlay to the hospital. He was experiencing some serious abdominal pain. And when she got there to the hospital in Bathurst, where actually, incidentally, she had worked and she was a nurse, um, she said that the triage nurse basically rolled her um, eyes at um, at Rachel when Finlay was sort of on the ground um, um, you know in in agony um, and uh, you know there was she also talked about another time when a a, a doctor um, basically sent um, her home and Finlay home and sort of just wrote him off as a grisly um, child with um, Down syndrome um, in the end um, you know Finlay had a sort of abdominal issue which ended up um, taking his life um, he when I was saying he went, um, he was taken to hospital that night. Um, Rachel says that he didn't get the care that he needed quickly enough. He wasn't taken to, um, you know, a bigger hospital, Westmead in Sydney, until the next morning. Even though she was led to believe that she would be, they would be taken that night. Um, he ended up dying about seventy days later. He never really made it out of hospital. Spent most of the time in intensive care. Um, that you know, Rachel is now fighting to have um, the coroner uh, or the coronial inquest into his death. Um, so, um, you know, those things will be determined at, at the specifics of what went wrong um, there. But um, the sort of overarching um, evidence that she gave was just uh, this feeling of um, having this uh, having her son who was so sick um, and just not feeling like anybody really cared, to be honest. She talks about... And she's a nurse, so it's not like somebody who... Uh, she was sort of saying her her partner was getting really frustrated and had to, to leave the hospital at different points in, in Finlay's life because he was so frustrated. But Rachel knows how hospitals work because she was a nurse. Mm. Um, but she knew that there wasn't this sort of urgency uh, that clearly was required um, being afforded in Finlay's case, compared to what she had seen before. Um, So, I mean, her story um, was the sort of the main story that I wrote about, but there were others as well where basically the the sense that um, the parents of people who have cognitive disabilities um, feel, uh, and that will be continued to be examined this week, is that for many reasons, including, I guess, a lack of resources and 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 attitudes, people with cognitive disabilities just don't get the same treatment um, that they are entitled to in our health system.
Mm, indeed. And um, one of the things that I found really shocking was uh, the fact that Finlay, um, that there, well, there's an example that um, the, the mother gave around his uh, death certificate and the fact that the cause of death um, was listed or one of the causes of death was listed as uh, Down syndrome, even though in her mind and um, what her understanding of the facts is, is that that was not the primary cause of death. Um, he may have had Down syndrome, but that wasn't what led to his death. Well, that's right. And and she was, um, you know, she told the Royal Commission that, you know, she doesn't believe that that should ever happen, um, where it's not an actual contributing factor to a person's uh, death. As I was saying before, um, previously when he had been discharged from hospital, there was a doctor who had basically attributed his issues to Down syndrome and, and sort of said, well, you know, he's a grizzly child um, with bad, I think it was bad oral um, or dental hygiene, um, all stuff that's not really relevant to what he had been um, brought to the hospital for. Um, and so I think that's right. I mean, why why that happens, it speaks to... Um, what um, what the commission, I guess, is describing as kind of this um, unconscious bias, really, that people across society, but in in this case in the health system, do have when they're you know when um, when they come into contact with people with cognitive disabilities. Um, clearly, it's um, for the reasons that I mentioned before about resources, but also you know sort of attitudes. Mm. Those those factors can be a sort of easy excuse um, rather than giving people the care that they need. And there was evidence raised around communication and how medical staff would often speak like the person, the patient was not actually even in the room or able to understand the discussions that they were having uh, with the parent and often saying quite brutal things like how much money are you going to spend keeping this person alive? I mean, it's a pretty shocking kind of thing because that's that's like heartbreaking for for the mother or, and or parent as well as the person with a disability. But presumably, this isn't even something that occurs just with people with cognitive disabilities. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think the case you're talking about there is Kim Creevy, who spoke on Friday, um, and yeah, again, she uh, she. She recounted an experience um, with a, a doctor with a paediatrician who essentially asked her, with her son Harry in the room, you know, how much are we going to spend? Um, I'll try and get the exact mm, quote here yeah. because I think it's important. Um, she sort of said, you know, the doctor was standing over Harry's bed and she told the commission that he could understand everything that um, was going on and and the paediatrician said how much more money are we going to spend on keeping him alive do you have an end of life plan for him and the child was in the room um i mean that's uh outrageous really i think mm. um and sort of just speaks to um what we were talking about before um where there's a sort of unconscious bias that exists um and uh, that is traumatic for for a, a mother to have to um, experience, for the, the child to experience, and um, the conversations that must have taken place after that, you know, can only imagine, really. Yeah, yeah. And the other element I wanted to um, speak with you about 
in regards to this was the experience of uh, pregnant women who found themselves in a situation where um, there was an observed uh, congenital heart defect and potentially their child had Down syndrome. Most often you can't be sure and and often I'm sure there would be women speaking here listening now who might be familiar and have had a conversation with a doctor who said there's a chance that this child has Down syndrome and then the conversation that follows and or just the statements that follow can be quite um, blunt and inappropriate. Yes, so um, there was a lady who spoke. Um, she actually appeared with her, her son Josh or Joshy um, at um, the Royal Commission um, and uh, she said that um, in the year 2000 when um, she was uh, having an ultrasound, um, she was told that um, it appeared that um, Josh might have, uh, you know, might be born with Down syndrome um, and the doctor uh, or the one of the um, medical professionals uh, essentially, while she was still crying, just gave her a piece of paper with an appointment for a termination, uh, which is, you know, I mean, I guess it sort of speaks for itself really. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's, she says that it set the tone um, for his life or for the way that he would be treated and she would um, feel like he was treated um, throughout his life so far. Um, I mean, the quote she gave was that um, they had completely disallowed his life, that he wasn't worth living um, in their eyes or in his the, the um, medical professional's eyes. Um, and again, I mean, it's a, it's a really um, extreme, dramatic um, example, but... It was highlighted because it gives people a sense of what happens um, for people um, and their families every day when they're trying to navigate through the health system. Mm. Um, it's uh, not even finished yet. <laughs> There's so many more hearings to go uh, and engagement activities that I believe the Commission's going to be travelling around Australia still um, and looking at the schedule They'll be going to Queensland in March, to Tasmania, to Brisbane, uh, regional Victoria, Western Sydney, Brisbane again, uh, Northern Territory and far north Queensland up until June 2020. So there's still quite a lot more to go. And, of course, we would have had, um, I believe we had hearings at the end of last year as well. So there's um, much more to come from it. But from your perspective as a reporter and how this uh, commission is being received and covered, what's your assessment of that compared to some of the other royal commissions we've been having um, recently that have also covered social issues? Um, I think, well, certainly speaking to uh, advocates, um, uh, I, I, I guess I feel like there might be a bit of frustration about the level of coverage, um, and I don't, um, I don't um, make that comment to say that, you know, we, at the Guardian, have, uh, you know, uh, are the only ones doing anything on it because, you know, it's kind of across the board, really. Um, uh, um, I think that these are things that should definitely be covered more. Um, I guess one thing is it's a it's a long um, it's going to be a long um, 
set of hearings over mm. many years, but uh, certainly I, I can relay um, the frustrations, I suppose, of people who are um, working in the advocacy area uh, area um, and at disability organisations who certainly would like more coverage. I mean, I did see um, a little bit of coverage this week, um, it, both in the um, commercial uh, news, um, television news, or at least the, their websites. Um, I think the ABC... Um, did uh, quite a, you know just watching ABC News twenty four throughout the day there was quite a bit of coverage and I, I think um, you know they had Naz Campanella um, reporting live um, um, which uh, you know I think is fantastic mm. um, so you know I suppose these uh, certainly compared to other royal commissions I mean if we think about the banking royal commission <laughs> for example it was basically led the the news many days mm. um, certainly at least on like ABC Radio and the like. Um, uh, there are reasons for why there are just differences, um, but I think you know wherever we can talk about the evidence that's been um, being given, I think uh, the better. Yeah, it certainly is a really valuable insight and something that hopefully opens up other people's eyes and maybe then there'll be uh, less chance for unconscious bias to creep back in in people's everyday interactions. Yeah, that's right. And I think I also just will mention mm. quickly that um, the the Commission heard this week from Kylie Scott, who is a woman um, uh, with Down syndrome who uh, appeared and, um, and she sort of spoke about... Um, uh, what, how she wants to be, um, or the experiences that she thinks she should have dealing with the health system, right? Um, yeah. And things she she basically was saying that things like trust are important with her doctor, um, and um, you know things like doctors should be able to to speak with her in in simple terms, clearly ask questions which are short and concise. Um, and she's living alone at the moment in Sydney, um, being assisted to do that um, now. And um, I guess having that um, her perspective at the Royal Commission as well mm. um, is important. And um, while the you know in the, some of the cases, partly because we're talking about people who have sadly passed away, but also because um, sometimes the the it's easiest to get the evidence from parents. Um, um, that that is how it is also great that the Royal Commission is hearing from uh, people with lived experiences of disability as well. Yes, and um, people can go to the Disability Royal Commission website uh, to look at some of the submissions as well because that's another way you can engage with people who won't be providing oral testimony but have provided other kinds of evidence and that's a valuable resource. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, again, uh, if you are on uh, social media, if you're on Twitter, definitely follow people with disability Australia who are doing a great job of um, tweeting what's happening i just got their handle up it's at pwd australia if you want to find that on twitter and they are fantastic um so let's move into robo debt which is the ongoing (laughs) saga of this coalition government yes um and (laughs) there was some really interesting developments um over the last month or even more obviously um but one of them was that uh, the coalition has been very very resistant to giving evidence and to talking about uh the robo debt scheme and what they knew and what their legal advice had been about how whether it was even legal to pursue some of these debts under the certain algorithm they started with. Um, and they had stated that they had no duty of care for welfare recipients over the robo-debt scheme. 
How accurate is that? Is that is it the fact that it's just not in in legislation in a really you know straight out way that the government has to take into account a, a person's well being before pursuing them for a debt they may or may not owe? Uh, I'm going to do uh, something which is going to annoy you, Amy, and do a sort of politician's answer here, which is that I'm not going to directly answer that because I don't, I'm not a, a legal expert and can't tell you. But um, certainly, uh, that's the argument that the, the government has put in its uh, defence um, to the class action brought by Gordon Legal. Um, and Gordon Legal is basically asserting that the government has, uh, you know, a duty to take uh, due and reasonable care as it. Um, uh, administers the social security system and part of that is to raise debts and to uh, um, then re- try and recoup the money um, that it claims uh, is owed. Um, so that is that is a debate or a legal argument which will take place. Um, I mean, it is true that the, the phrases um, due and reasonable care do not appear in the social security um law in the administration act or the social security act um i think people were pointing out to me on twitter that the social security guide does have a a make mention of uh, a duty of care sort of i'm not a lawyer but i think you know it goes comes down to sort of what is common uh, common law duty Mm. of care and, and and um i guess that will be something that will be determined by um a court. However, uh, and I usually am reluctant to do to do this, but in this case, I think it's important. And I think James Campbell in the Herald Sun pointed it out um, over the week, which is leaving the legal arguments aside. And if we sort of put our Ospol uh, hat on, yep. we talk about that for a second. Uh, to file a defence which argues that the government doesn't have a duty of care to its citizens, let alone its citizens, which are by definition the, the most vulnerable in the community, is a, a very difficult uh, uh, thing to sort of uh, back up um, and to win support for. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in these sort of legal cases, uh, you will try and find whatever uh, legal arguments you can to win, but uh, whether or not that is a sort of... Um, uh, feasible position going forward politically, I, I imagine, is a sort of different question and will probably be the one that uh, is more determinative of what the government might choose to do going forward, mm. particularly if you consider that um, the previous case um, brought by Victoria Legal Aid never made it to trial. There was never court hearings where all this was thrashed out. I don't know what the government will do here, but uh, certainly if it's going to stand up in court over various hearings and try and prosecute the argument that it does not have a duty of care to make sure that the debts that it uh, asserts are correct, uh, that will be, I think, a difficult prospect. Mm. Well, that case that did make headlines, uh, gosh, what was it, two months ago now, um, as you said, it was settled with the government. And so the federal court, um, in orders made by consent, as in the government or the that party consented to this order, um, said that the debt was, quote, not validly made. And so I guess that's where people are saying and using this um, as a, a way to pursue reparations and and try and find out whether a court will say it is unlawful the the robo debt that was the original formulation which was essentially you know get getting um information from the ATO 
looking at it and comparing it with the reported income that people provided to Centrelink, which um, was often estimated. Mm. And it's really quite difficult for anyone on Newstart who is part-time or casual because most people would know that you do not have the same pay every fortnight, so it's kind of difficult to estimate. Um, and then, and then there was, I guess, if there was a, a discrepancy, it was the burden was placed on that person to then prove that they didn't owe a debt, which is often, um, if people would think about a debt system, you would think it's the onus is the other way around, wouldn't you? You would, and um, essentially the court, um, at least in the specific case that was brought. Uh, that was uh, settled in November agreed Uh, and the government has essentially tacitly acknowledged that as well without sort of saying yeah look we we have been pursuing debts which we now acknowledge are unlawful basically all the evidence and all its actions beyond the court case have have told us that that is their position they have said uh, you know sort of to put it in simple terms um, we will not assert a, a debt a commonwealth debt um, without having uh, evidence for it, right? Before they basically had like a sort of estimations, calculations, which they could use to say, well, look, it looks like you probably have a debt. <laughs> what they're now saying is we need evidence, which is, you know, if I earned $200 at, um, at McDonald's over a fortnight uh, and actually I uh, reported $100, they need evidence that the $200 was paid to me, mm. so they need my pay slips or my or a bank statement. It gets a bit more confusing with the bank statements, but essentially they're saying, well, we need evidence to say, look, you told us this, and we now know with proof that the answer is no, actually it was this. Um, and so at the moment they're reviewing all the debts to see which ones they had raised without all the evidence. Mm-hmm. Will um, it's a sort of assumed that they're going to repay the money, but they have not uh, sort of officially said that yet. Um, and and you know they also had said that they would sort of finalise the process of how many people were affected by. Well, they sort of said they expect it by the end of January. So um, you know it's it's all happening quite slowly. Uh, there aren't as uh, you know we know that the. The legal advice they received legal advice at some point last year that the process that they had was unlawful. So, uh, what they will do now, I, I don't know, but basically, it's expected that they will take the debts that they issued without, which you know, basically were unlawful, and return the money where it's been paid and and. and you know, cancel the debts. At least that's the hope of advocates. If not, well, you can expect another big uh, argument, <laughs> uh, or, or, or you know, and the court case um, will, I guess, play that help play that out as well. Mm. Can you remind me how many people have signed up to the class action? Uh, well, actually, I reported it was ten thousand, but I, I, I did see, I think, reports that it had been uh, got to eleven thousand. Um, so about 11,000 at the moment. Uh, it's sort of that gives you a sense of the um, um, interest in it. Mm. Um, I think the way the, the actual class action system works is that the, you know, the court um, or Gordon Legal will submit, these are the people that we say are affected. And then if you are, you belong to that group, then mm. you will be able to um, seek um, whatever recourse the, the court uh, determines if it does in fact do that. Um, but that gives you a sense that, you know, 
Um, there are a lot of angry people who uh, do, you know, basically want um, compensation. Um, and I guess that's the other point, right, is that mm. people will, um, you know, if the government's taken money from its citizens unlawfully, uh, yes, it should be returned. But also, uh, you know, uh, we've heard cases about people who've taken their own lives because of receiving these um, notices, um, the mental health impacts that receiving these notices have had um, are in some cases really extreme and so you know it's one thing to say oh well we got it wrong or we're fixing the system we'll return the money um but that you know that doesn't really help people who have already had their lives turned upside down because they received a debt a year ago or two years ago or yeah or three years ago yeah and i mean if you say that there's um now approximately eleven thousand in that class action um in your piece you noted that more than six hundred thousand debts were issued um which totaled about 1.6 billion dollars so this is really quite a huge program um that has led to you know, effects that are on a mass scale. It's not <laughs> even down to 11,000 people, is it? No, I, I mean, so it won't be, and it gets a bit tricky here, but it won't. So 600,000 of the debts that were issued will not all be de- debts that were issued um, without the evidence, mm, right? Yeah, because it pa- changed over time, didn't it? And part of the problem as well is that a lot of people <laughs> were told, you owe money, and so therefore they were essentially... Uh, and then they were told, "Oh, well, we think you owe money, and we're going to we're going to issue a debt. But if you think that it's wrong, you can provide us with pay slips um, to prove that it's not." Yeah. In some cases, that meant that the debt was reduced, but the fundamental wiped out or wiped out. Yeah. But the we, you're coming then from as you mentioned before that the onus of proof was on the person mm. to go through this process in the first place, um, and so you have lots of people who will have done work to prove that they may have been overpaid $200 in 2017 when the government had no actual legal proof that that debt existed in the first place and used, uh, you know, asserted a debt unlawfully to say, now give us the evidence that you might owe some money. Like the whole thing, yeah. (laughs) Gets messy. It does. Yeah. Um, on a very related note, we saw a development around New Start and reporting requirements and uh, the government seeking to move from the next financial year to a different arrangement whereby people um, report actual income somehow. So how, what is, well, first of all, what has been the response from the sector about such a different change? Because we have had kind of the same scheme for a very long time um, and whether that change will be positive or negative and, and have the, I guess, the intended outcome, which is to have more accurate reporting. So I think the uh, phrase I used in my story was cautiously welcomed. Uh, I think, and that I think probably sums up the, the uh, view of um, social service groups and legal groups who've looked at robodebt and things like that. Um, and um, I guess the political argument which has been put by Labor and, and the Greens is similar, which is that we think this is a good idea, but we're not convinced that you can do this properly. And they cite robodebt as an example of that. But, um, I mean, my, uh, you know, having reported on this, it does seem like a good thing and it's a fairly obvious thing. There are things to be worked out to do with... Um, you know people's reporting periods and uh and the like but 
it makes sense that if you can allow people to report to Centrelink the figure that is on their payslip, that is a lot easier than having them having to essentially keep uh, notes or a diary of the mm. shifts that they work and then calculate, judged on their pay rate, what they think they will have will be paid eventually yes. based on the um, hours that they worked over a fortnight. Um, in addition to that, they're also going to get the tax office to um, basically autofill people's um, Centrelink reporting um, uh, app or, or um, the, the, the system that they use. So kind of like when you do your tax return and a lot of the data is already there because it's come from the tax office, um, they're going to do the same thing with that. Clearly, um, that is a good thing which could also have problems if the data is not correct. And, um, you know, if um, people will have the opportunity, welfare recipients will be able to change that information. But Mm. I think the sector has rightfully pointed out um, a lot of people will just accept the information because it's coming from the tax office, just as a lot of people... Um, mm. accepted the debts that they were issued because it was coming from Centrelink, right? Um, there is an understandable um, uh, tendency to just uh, take information when it's given to you from a, you know, authority and say, well, that must be correct. So that that is one danger, but sort of on the whole, and there was a um, the Senate, uh, the Senate has done a little report into it, and uh, basically Labor and the Greens say that they'll support the legislation. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I guess it's a good change. Mm. Uh, if I could just make one yeah. other point, which is, even though this is a great, I think a great sort of change, I do find it incredible that it's taken this long for anybody to work out a system where people can actually, you know, report the income that they can see on their payslip rather than having to guess. And it's leaving aside debts that people will have been issued because of, you know, flawed data from the the ATO and the government basically averaging out um, people's pay to say you might owe a debt, leaving that aside, mm. there will be people who owe, have owed money um, because they incorrectly reported because they had to guess, because they had to figure it out um, by calculating what they think they're probably going to be paid. Um, uh, um, one of the things that the government put in its um, submission to this inquiry was saying, oh, well, in 2017, um, 15 million times people had to... Um, fix their income that they had reported afterwards because it turned out that they'd been paid less or more than they they had guesstimated, right? Um, And they put that to say, well, this is why we need to change the system, which is true, but uh, it just shows how many people have set up to fail Mm. under the old system. And this budget measure was introduced uh, actually in the last budget or it was was in the last budget. and at the same time that there was basically that's a tacit acknowledgement that, oh, the reporting system doesn't work, yeah. um, they were also ramping up rubber debt, yeah. right? So to basically the old system uh, makes it means that people are going to misreport, which will mean they will get debts. Meanwhile, let's ramp up the system that we're going to use in order to recoup that money when we're acknowledging in the first place that the system itself causes people to to mark up their reporting. Yeah.
Well, and I think most people would be familiar with like casual leave load, casual loading and also holiday loading. And I mean, that is a minefield in itself to know which one, if it's 1.5 times or two times, depending on, you know, you're working on a weekend or a public holiday. So, you know, these things are difficult to begin with for anyone to manage. And then you have to add that into the mix it's a really good point absolutely and i mean I, you know i'm hopefully not putting a target on my back here but i remember when i did work at mcdonald's and was on youth allowance it was really difficult and mm. sometimes you're like oh that seems right good enough yeah right? this was many years ago before the whole robo debt thing even existed and you sort of just had to go oh i think that's i think that's probably what it's going to say mm. on my pay slip but you don't know right? yeah you have no idea and that's why yeah. so many people uh, ends up getting debts. Yeah. Um, one other element or two, very briefly, one I saw recently was that Centrelink has announced they are closing offices around the country in Newcastle, Newport, Mornington, um, and also a, f- a couple of others. And that's concerning um, from my perspective, understanding that there are people in the community, particularly with a disability, any kind of disability, who need a face-to-face conversation with someone in order to understand a very convoluted process. Um, that's really going to affect a lot of people. And the uh, rationale that they've been given is that we have a duty to the taxpayer to be more efficient and uh, to move things online because, of course, everyone can manage the online system. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, it's so there's that issue that you mentioned there with Centrelink. Um, and at the same time, we do know that there's a trial at the moment with the job, um, the employment services system, and they're also pushing to make that. Um, a far more digital uh, process. Um, speaking to people um, who engage with the system so often, they now say, oh, well, I didn't understand what was going on, so I went to a Centrelink office yep. and they either told me, oh, well, we have phones there, so yes. go and use the phone. Or, or there's oh, computers. Or there's computers. <laughs> Basically, we can't help you. Um it adding that, that, you know, clearly they want to um, have less uh, shop fronts. Um, I don't I don't know, I, I can't imagine many people who are engaging with the system which who will be happy about that. I, I often, you know, Centrelink will describes or Services Australia describes the people that engage with the system as customers, right? Um Leaving aside whether or not we think that's a good characterization, it's uh, I don't know any customers who would be pleased about not being able to speak to a person. It's kind of it's almost a cliche now yeah. within you know sort of a customer business relationship that people like to have somebody to deal with, and uh, particularly people who are going through a tough time um, need somebody to sit down and help them. Mm. I, I, you know, I share your concerns essentially. Yeah, yeah. And Luke, um, just briefly, the cashless welfare debit card continues to be expanded and be trialled in other areas. Uh, and it's been, I guess, a, something people have raised in the sector around whether this would be expanded even further, which seems to be potentially the intent of the government. Um, what, where are we at at the moment in terms of the use of a cashless welfare debit card? Um, so it's now, um, well, just to, to put some context mm. around the discussion about expansion, um, the, the, the plan now that the government has been trying to 
get over the line in the Senate for a while is to expand it into the Northern Territory uh, and it needs um, Jackie Lambie's support in order to do that. She's basically said, you know, expressed a lot of scepticism about whether or not she'll um, support that plan. Um, Northern Territory welfare recipients are at the moment already um, faced with using the basics card, which was introduced uh, during the intervention. Um, So... Uh, but there is um, still, despite that, there mm. is still um, opposition from within the sector, from Indigenous groups um, and from Labor and, and the Greens to that proposal. Um, you know, the the, the, the cashless debit card um, is being trialled in, uh, in Queensland, in the Harvey Bay area. It's still uh, being trialled in, uh, in WA, in the East Kimberley uh, and goldfields and uh, in South Australia as well in Sejuna. Um, we are expecting a report um, that the government has commissioned, I think, the University of South Australia to do um, to look at whether or not it's working. Um, that report, I think, you know, there were suggestions it would come out around now, but mm-hmm. um, we don't know, really know where it is. Um, so I'm sure we'll see that at some point. Uh, and I guess more broadly, there have been um, newspaper stories about a desire to expand this nationally. I mean, ultimately, that's something that would require legislation, uh, and uh, I don't know where um, you know, I don't know where they would get the support for that. But um, it's something that always sort of pops up, um, mm. uh, you know, kind of a weekend newspaper story where. Either the, I think the Prime Minister last year was sort of saying that his vision is for it to be national and, and Rustin, the Social Services Minister, said a similar thing uh, earlier in the year. The government's been working with the banks and retailers in order to improve, well, to use its <laughs> words, improve the card, uh, to make sure that it could work on a national level. Um, clearly that's the intention, but I don't want to you know, concern people by yes. giving them the sense that that is closer to happening no. than it really is because at this point, if it can't win support to have it in, expanded into Northern Territory where a, a similar card already exists, uh, I, I imagine that it would be even more difficult to expand it nationally. That's really, really helpful information, Luke. Um, thank you so, so much for coming in to speak about these issues. It's been such a real um, important eye-opening discussion for me and I'm sure many people listening and appreciate your reporting. No, thanks. Uh, as I said, we really uh, it's really great to be able to talk about these uh, things and uh, thanks to your listeners for uh, being interested in them as well. Thank you. I've been speaking with Luke Enrique Gomez and he is here. He's from The Guardian Australia, reports regularly on the subjects we've just been discussing and uh, you can follow him on Twitter as well and keep up to date with some of what is happening in this sector. I now have with me in the studio Alison Puglio, who is an honorary fellow at the ANU. She's also a natural historian and ecologist and an environmental photographer and she focuses her attention on fungi, although I believe um, her training was in freshwater science, which is fascinating. Uh, And we're going to be speaking all about her work as well as her book that came out uh, through CSIRO Publishing called The Allure of Fungi, which is just beautiful and also fascinating. It's a really great 
great um, non-fiction read, but it's written in a really literary way. So uh, I'm pleased to welcome Alison now, and thank you so much for coming in. Thanks so much for having me, Amy. It's such a pleasure to be here in the Triple R studios. It's good to have you back. We were just saying that uh, it's been a while since you've been in here in person. Absolutely. Yeah, so let's um, talk about fungi, which is very, very exciting, I've got to say. Um, I was saying earlier in the show that I had the pleasure of interviewing Peter Volubin about the hidden life of trees, and that was the first exposure I had to this idea that there is a whole network under the ground that is not just a tree's root system, uh, but that it's really connected up with fungi um and a very set kind of i mean it's called mycelium that's correct yeah and so there's this fascinating web underneath going underneath the ground as well as the kind of visual um, elements of fungi that we see on top of the ground at very transient moments in the seasons can you share with us first up what this um idea is of this is it called the wood wide web? Absolutely. <laughs> and I think it's a great metaphor because we, we know about the internet and we know how wonderful it is for communication, all this interconnectivity, but that also exists there in nature. So the idea of the mycelium underneath the soil, within the soil, providing this fundamental architecture of pretty much every terrestrial ecosystem on the planet, Mm. but also linking up all of these trees. And you mentioned Peter's book, and I think he's done a wonderful job of putting this into people's consciousness and awareness. And when you think of a forest, of being completely connected in this way, you walk very differently through the forest. We practice conservation very differently. We think very differently, not just about the forest, Mm. but our own gardens and parks and every ecosystem. So I think this is really captured the public consciousness and imagination and awareness in so many wonderful ways. Yeah, and one of the elements that um, I was not that surprised by but hadn't really been aware of was the very much the fact that fungi is very distinct as a kingdom essentially it is its own kingdom and it's not in the plant system that's correct it's a great great distinction you make and most of our understanding of how nature is organized comes from people like Carl Linnaeus or Charles Darwin where we had this notion of there just being this dichotomy something is either a plant or an animal and fungi are the true unruly renegades in that they contravene the the rules of both so that they've got their whole own kingdom as you said and they're very very different to plants and animals they're very very different organisms in terms of how they're made in terms of how they live in fact they were put in the, the plant kingdom for a long time because they were stationary they weren't moving around like animals they didn't look like animals they didn't look like, look like plants either but mm. Early scientists couldn't quite work out what they are, but we now know they're actually more closely related to animals and plants in terms of the material their cells are made out of, in terms of how they obtain nutrition. So they don't photosynthesize like plants, they don't lose the sun, use the sun, yeah. but they actually digest organic material just like we do. We do it internally, internal digestion, they do it externally. So they basically sit in their food and slobber, <laughs> to borrow from psychologist <laughs> Tom May, in terms of they just secrete these enzymes into the surrounds and they absorb what they need. So mm. very interesting organisms and I think that's part of why they're so curious to me. They, they have this whole separate kingdom, whole different way of, of living that really does contravene a lot of the ways we think about nature, a lot of the assumptions we have. Yeah, and they have been, I guess, a bit unfairly maligned by many people 
over history. Indeed. I recall you saying that um, Charles Darwin called fungi lowly beggars. Lowly beggars, yes, indeed. And I think it's because they were too confounding. They couldn't work out what they are. And I think because they occupy the subterrane, they Mm. occupy darkness, they don't need light in the way plants do. And I think... Because they were so ephemeral, the mushrooms came up, they suddenly appeared, the next day they'd vanished. They really triggered our imaginations. We tried to explain why is it must be connected with the supernatural or with witchcraft or with things that we, we can't explain. So I think because of that... They got associated with things such as witchcraft or supernatural or those terrible things called women. <laughs> <laughs> it was the women who held the knowledge, you know, the fungal law about fungi. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that I mean, if you look element. back through history, a lot of cultures, it was the grandmothers who passed the knowledge of which fungi were beneficial for their medicinal use or which ones were edible. It was the, the grandmothers who passed it down to mothers and on to daughters and grandchildren and mm. perhaps that was just because... The men were doing the heavier work of harvesting the fields. You know, mushrooms come up in autumn, mm. so there's a lot of harvest. Perhaps that's why harvesting to be done. So the women developed that knowledge, which of course was gradually taken away from them. Yeah, and some of the- as as happens every time women become an expert in something that's or have true. power. Yeah, indeed. Gosh, it's fascinating, really, as well, though, that they are so ephemeral, and also you have to be very observant to note the different species and when they're there and if they're edible or not. And that kind of um, careful observation is something which obviously scientists have, but certainly I think, you know, a lot of women over history would have been very fascinated by what's going on around them and and notice those small things and also notice important things like medicinal properties because they want to, to care for their families. Indeed, and I think you're right. I think it's about that extended observation over time, being Mm. in situ, being out there in the field or the forest, where the fungi are, observing when they come up, where they come up, how long they last, and particular qualities that we can't get today just from looking at them online. Like so much of it's sensorial. So much of the way we distinguish different mushrooms and other fungi is about the smell or the texture or the taste, although taste is something you don't start with as a sense until you have a really good idea about the kingdom and which ones could kill you. <laughs> but that's one of the wonderful benefits I've had, the great privilege of living half a year in Europe. So I spend the autumn here, then I head to Europe, and just watching how the Europeans do it. And often the very first thing they'll do when they pick up a mushroom is not look at it, but hold it straight to their nose. And you realise, yeah, we've lost a lot of that sensorial connection, not just with fungi but nature in general. And, and there's so much you can learn just by touching the cap or the pileus, as we call it. And does it have a felty texture or a mucousy texture or a rough texture? And so much comes from senses other than the visual, which is our very much our dominant sense. Mm. What um, what kind of countries in Europe do you travel around to to look at their types of fungi? So I'm based in Central Europe in mm. Switzerland, which is a great springboard to other countries but I've worked a lot with the Germanic cultures but particularly going down to places like Italy where there's such wonderful long histories of consuming edible fungi also Mm. in France but Scandinavia is really interesting as well and Finland is very different to Norway very different again to Sweden the UK I guess is more like Australia in terms of English-speaking cultures tend to be what we call mycophobic or fearing of fungi. Yeah. So you'll find the Brits, the Americans, Canadians, New Zealanders, Australians, we've taken a lot longer to embrace fungi compared to many continental Europeans and Mm. some of the African countries and Asian countries. So 
all of them have something to offer and, and language has a lot to do as well with how we understand fungi. So yep. in English language, you don't have a lot of words for fungi, mm. but it's very different in, in European languages. Interesting. Mm. I'm wondering also within the UK, there's such a different range of cultures and there's Indeed. you know Wales and Scotland in yeah. particular who have their own languages That's as right. well yeah. are there any differences between those kind of parts of the UK That's an interesting question I haven't actually looked at the differences in the English language I guess the United Kingdom is such a highly modified place yeah. in terms of most of the I guess original habitat is gone I think it mm. was McFarlane, Rob McFarlane, who said there's only about 3% of the, I guess what you call natural habitat or original habitat left. So yep. I guess I've been drawn to those countries where perhaps there's a little bit more natural habitat. But I would say that there are. Perhaps, you know, if you go to some of those outer Hebridean islands yeah. of Scotland, there'll be very different fungi and languages and understanding compared to if you're somewhere, say, close to, to London. I think, mm. you know, I think, I'm sure there would be differences. I mean, you see that in Australia as well. Yeah. There's some beautiful islands like Orkney oh, Islands yes. and Isle of Skye. Absolutely. Absolutely. That are very wild. They are. Yeah. I went on a really curious foray in the Outer Hebridean Islands years ago with the British Mycological Society to look at a particular group of fungi. Yeah. And uh, and a rare fungus that grows only out there on old hazel trees. And mm. and there's a huge passion about these very obscure fungi that grow in the most remote and unusual places. And I think there's all these you know strange groups of kooks out there <laughs> who, who like their particular groups of fungi. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's what is really special about this area as well is that there's so many passionate people who are Mm. not um, necessarily trained scientists or it's not their whole full-time job to Mm. to study fungi but are still absolutely passionate and fascinated by it and still engage in citizen science about this as well. What's your kind of experience around that and I guess in Europe but also in Australia? Is there... um, a passion, a kind of um, grassroots passion for fungi. There is. And look, you're spot on. There's so many different, I guess you could say, entry points to fungi. So the first thing I always ask people when they come out on a foray is why they're there. Are they looking for edible species or hallucinogenic species (laughs) or are they photographers or artists or sometimes I get philosophers who are out there or I might get eco-lit people or all sorts of different areas of interest. I might be working with traditional owners or perhaps rangers or conservationists who want to know are they looking after the fungi when they look after a particular part of you know piece of habitat so Mm. I'm always fascinated why people come along I have linguists who come along then I have gardeners horticulturalists who are trying to get fungi back into their gardens and get that wonderful network that you mentioned at the beginning that network of mycelium that actually holds the soil particles apart it allows the soil to be aerated and for water to trickle down very gently down to those deeper horizons so there's people who are recognizing the importance of actually getting that fungal architecture back into their their gardens and other landscapes so Mm. there is this huge range huge range of people who are fascinated and I think for many it's just sheer curiosity you see something come up it has this strange form it's not always that cap and stalk style familiar mushroom but you get these things called anemone starfish that you know have these incredible red like tentacles that unfurl and then as they develop they produce this brown slurry that smells like a decomposing wombat (laughs) and you think you know what sort of evolutionary pressures (laughs) drive something to look and smell like that and and maybe that isn't the question on everyone's mind who comes along but I think they really do spark the imagination yeah they do it reminds me of um, your discussion in your book about the French naturalist who came to Australia and encountered I think 
was it that's that the monkey? One. Yeah, exactly. What was it called? It's called Aceroa rubra, is the Latin name, or the anemone starfish or anemone stinkhorn. Yeah. It was Jacques Labiadiere. And mm. he was here in, I think, 1790 as part of the Dontracasto expedition in southern Tasmania. So that was the very first fungus to be described in Australia. And I think because it was so flamboyant, you know, this yeah. colour and strange form and an incredible smell, I think it really captured his eye. I and mean, it was never going to be just a little brown mushroom that <laughs> caught the eyes of the first explorers. Fair enough. And um, I, just to touch on how people get into fungi, it would be remiss of me to not ask how you were, I guess, in, made curious or inspired by fungi. What was it that initially got you interested or how did you encounter fungi? Look, I guess all of it was interesting, not just the fungi. Yeah. So as a young child walking around in dead, crawling around in the bush, everything was interesting. There was ants scurrying everywhere. There was these amazing black beetles clambering through the leaf litter. There was orchids and mosses and sundews glittering in the morning light and all these things. But the fungi did hold this other level of allure because they Mm. seemed... They weren't just decorations in the bush. They had this other level of fascination, and I think it is to do with that ephemerality. But, you know, I really like this question. I don't know whether you saw that interview a few years ago between Barack Obama and David Attenborough and it was actually Attenborough's 90th birthday and Barack invited him to the White House Mm -hmm. to ask him you know what could the American people do to get on top of all these massive pressing environmental issues species extinction climate change all the rest and I really liked how Attenborough turned the question around because Obama said, you know, how do we get people interested in nature? And Attenborough said, well, the question should really be, why did people lose it? Because every child is inherently interested. They're fascinated. If you put them somewhere on the ground, in the forest, in the bush, in the garden, wherever, they're they're naturally drawn to these colours and shapes and movements. So what happens that we lose it? And sometimes I'm curious about this question you ask because I think, well, isn't everybody? (laughs) Isn't everyone fascinated in it they should be that's my view I'm a little bit biased (laughs) (laughs) I was just um looking at some of the photos that you've taken because they're so um visual and artistic I guess and have such different aesthetics and you know it's across a whole color spectrum isn't it the the types of fungi you encounter in Australia I know you've um kind of looked at the level of diversity of fungi and you've stated that it Australia is really quite unique in terms of its um, climates and that can lead to that level of species diversity. Mm -hmm. What kind of level of diversity do we have in Australia that that you've kind of looked at and encountered and do we have an idea of how many types of species and it probably won't be very accurate because how how do we know? But. You're right, and we are starting to count them. But look, there's just so few people studying mycology in Australia, mm. and that's why these citizen science programs are so great. But Australia is one of 18 countries that are regarded as mega diverse. So that means those 18 countries constitute about 80% of the world's total biodiversity, so total number of species. And if you think about the amount of latitude we have in Australia, if you drew a line, say, from far north Queensland 
all the way down, right down through Victoria, down to Tasmania's South Bruni Island, and you think about all those different ecosystems you'd move through. So you'd mm. start up at Thursday Island, you've got mangroves, you've got coastal ecosystems, your sand dunes, you move up through the tropical rainforests of Queensland, far north Queensland, then you come into savannah grasslands. As you come further south, you come into temperate ecosystems, alpine ecosystems, you might go through some desert area, all the way down to those magnificent tall stringy bark forests of southern Tasmania. Every one of those ecosystems is comprised of different plants and plants often have particular fungi associated with Mm. them. They also each have their own microclimates, microhabitats and all of those have been exploited by different fungi. So that great diversity of plant species... Microclimates, microhabitats means we have this incredible diversity of accompanying fungi. I mean, if you were just to take, say, a country like Switzerland, where I spend a lot of my time as well, yeah. there's no mangroves, there's no coast, mm, <laughs> it's yeah. landlocked, there's no deserts, there's no tropical ecosystems. I mean, there's all these other wonderful ecosystems there, but there isn't that mega diversity of different climates and and ecosystems like we have in Australia, and that's why we have this incredible diversity, that along with our isolation for such a long time in geological history. Yeah, right. It reminds me of one of the articles you wrote um, from 2013 called Intimate Strangers of the Subterrane, and it was looking at a tiny blue organism in the Central Highlands? Uh, in the Otways, I think Otways, it was. There yes, you go. Yeah. And it was um, the Mycena Interrupter. That's correct. Yes. Could you share with us what that is? Because oh, it sounds amazing. So, it is. It's called the Pixies Parasol. And I think there's so few fungi in nature that are blue. And it's this intense mm. blue. It's tiny. It's the size of your little fingernail usually. So it's this tiny little thing, intense colour. And you know what? If you take kids out to the bush, to wet forests, it's mainly in wetter forests, yep. they always spot it. And I think that's what happened to that's me cool. at the age of seven, crossing the, I think it was the Erskine River, one of those Otways oh, yeah. wonderful rivers, and I slipped on this log and I saw these tiny blue eyes looking at me from this <laughs> other log. And again, they just captured my imagination. And a few years back, we were thinking about trying to make a particular fungus a flagship in conservation so a species that you know we have koalas and other what we call charismatic megafauna and wonderful orchids and things as well but there's few fungal flagships where people say this is the species that captures the broader imagination Mm. and so I took photos of about a dozen what I consider to be very aesthetic or beautiful species. And we asked a whole range of different people which was their favourite. And of all these different, they're all different colours and shapes and forms and different all these different manifestations. And I think about 40 or 50% of people all chose the Pixies Parasol. Oh, really? Yeah, I think it's just so I'm endearing. I'm not surprised. I was just, I'm looking at it right now and it's pretty and gorgeous. Yeah, it's just, and the blue is so unique, it is. isn't it? It's very unique in nature in the fungal world. Yeah. And, and it's I like think an aqua. It is very yeah. intense and and so short-lived. These things can last just a few days. So you have this sense of privilege of, of mm. seeing it in this very, very short life of the, the fruit. Well, not the organism because it's actually there in the wood, but the actual reproductive part, the mushroom. Yeah. Very short-lived. And how do you approach that from a photography perspective when they're so minuscule? Like how do you 
I don't know. Do you have to get up really close to them and yes. make sure you don't blow it away? That's or? right. You've got to be careful not to breathe on them or they quiver and collapse in front of your eyes. <laughs> so, look, photographing fungi is incredibly challenging because so many of them do grow in the darkest, wettest parts of the forest. And you know, you've yeah. got to avoid getting that leech up your nose while you're trying to photograph them. The low light and often the light's filtered through the canopy. So there's all sorts of challenges of colour and low light and the creatures of the forest. But yeah. I think today the cameras are so advanced. And we've all got cameras on our phones now and all these sorts of things. And that's a, a great part of these sorts of projects like iNaturalist and these online platforms where you can post things and have them identified. But actually taking a really captivating image of a mushroom for me is an enormous challenge. And if I get one photograph in a day when I go out photographing, I'm pretty happy. Mm. So there is a lot of time involved and, yeah, but it's, it's a wonderful thing. And But I think a big part of it... It's just, as you mentioned in the beginning, it's, it's observing them in the first place. Yeah. It's actually developing that sensitivity and awareness and, and acute observation skills. Mm. And, well, one of the things that I thought um, is beautiful that you wrote is that one may even consider fungi to be extraordinarily expressive organisms. It just seems to capture it really well, oh, doesn't it? Oh, thank you. And it's just... I don't know. There's this inner life when you look at it, I guess, that you could imagine what's going on. <laughs> you, you see the top of it, but there's, yeah, there's this whole other world that kind of can capture your imagination. How do you also look at what's going on underneath and, and get an idea of that, given how, you know, thin and tiny, I guess, the mycelium is and that it's distributed out so far. Yeah, look, and that's where fungi do become so astonishingly arcane. I mean, the, the mushrooms themselves or the other what we call sporophores, the fruit bodies sometimes. Yeah. I like to use the word sporophores because fruit bodies, you know, likens them Sounds to, like to plants and yeah. they're not. But they have all these wonderful manifestations that are fascinating. Mm. But for me, the really exciting part is what you mentioned. It's this notion that they do provide this network of connectivity, it's this sharing of resources. And mm. you mentioned Peter's book, Peter Voldeben's book, but a lot of his research was tied in or connected to the work of Suzanne Simard, who's a British Columbian scientist and she was working in the forests of British Columbia and she worked out that in a forest and they're different forests to our ecosystems although you can also translate a lot of that to these ecosystems as well but she worked out that the hub tree in one of those forests so a hub tree is an older tree a mother tree sometimes they're called in a forest she worked out by looking at the mycelium and the connectivities on average it's connected to 47 other trees wow and that's a very different way of thinking about a forest if you affect one tree one of these older trees in a forest you potentially affect 47 or more that's just the average number of trees and this idea of it's very hard to explain this to people you say people say what do you mean the mushrooms connected to the tree what's not the mushroom as you said it's the the mushrooms just the organ of the organism Mm. so the mycelium this tapestry or interconnected network of these long white fibres called hyphae, these long white cells that are, as you say, they're microscopic. It's why it's hard to imagine them. They actually branch out, continually branch out, and they form a sheath around the roots of trees and effectively extend out their root system, increasing the absorptive capacity of that root system. So the tree then has a much greater chance to access more water and a greater range of nutrients Mm. because plants can't actually solubilise or make absorbable the things they need, whereas fungi have this amazing artillery or 
or I guess you could say chemist shop full of chemicals or things called enzymes that can break down all those recalcitrant compounds like lignin and cellulose that give wood its hardness. The tree itself can't break those down. So they need that fungal partner in this symbiotic relationship to actually secrete those enzymes, break down the wood, make all those things absorbable, Mm. and then they transport that back to the tree. And in return, the tree gives the fungus a lovely feed of sugars that it produces through photosynthesis. So it's this beautiful two-way sharing of resources. But then it gets even more bizarre because the tree can transport that to another tree in the forest via this wood wide web or underground network of fungi. So it really changes the whole way we think about ecosystems and this traditional, I mean, don't get me wrong, Darwin and Linnaeus gave us these wonderful systems for thinking Mm. about nature, but they focused on the individual biological autonomy of species not the connections. Yeah. So Linnaeus was about giving everything an individual discrete name, which is wonderful that we have this naming system. We can talk to people across the world and speak the same language, but it overlooked the fundamental interconnectivity. Mm. And I sometimes think if we used mycelium, the fungal body, as the prototype of life, our whole way we think about nature, but also our social systems could be very, very different It'd be much more about this interconnection, sharing of resources, much more about collaboration Mm. and competition and the whole way. Perhaps even our political systems, our social systems could work from a very different premise. Yeah. Now I know why philosophers go on your tours. (laughs) That makes sense. It's very profound. (laughs) I I was really fascinated to hear that uh, these mycelium underneath the ground are so fine that they can be up to 100 times finer than tree roots. Yes, indeed. And that's why they're so effective at getting in between all those tiny cracks and crevices and those interstitial spaces between the grains of sand and soil. The plant root, even a rootlet, a very, very small plant root, it's a big clunky thing it can't actually get in between those spaces so Mm. the fungal mycelium has much more opportunity to exploit all that territory that the big clumsy plant root can't actually get to so it's that fineness that gives them that capacity to exploit much more territory gain more water more nutrients but in the process also put that architecture in and that's the thing we've lost from most of our agricultural soils Mm. because we've done all these things like tilling where we break up that gossamer thin network of threads like compaction when we have these heavy machines like drowning them because we over irrigate Mm. or we poison them through the application of nitrates, phosphates, uh, potassium in excess. Anything in excess is toxic. So we've done things that have actually removed that whole architecture of the soil, I mean, it seems fundamentally fundamentally anti-intuitive, but there's yeah. been this big turnaround, Amy. I'm so excited to see these progressive farmers recognise that the fungi do exactly the same thing as irrigating and applying fertilisers, except the fungi do it better. <laughs> so there's been this return, you know, the no-till approach of, mm. of permaculture and and other approaches that's trying to actually retain that framework in the soil. So it's a very exciting time of seeing this transition. Yeah. It reminds me about um, native forest logging as well because the approach is often to log a certain area but leave a few trees around for native species to still be able to live in, yeah. um, which is you know, a very flawed approach in my mind about... How- 
you know, preserving an ecosystem and an endangered species. But I wonder whether that also would disrupt the the kind of fungi networks underneath when you get rid of a, a whole mass of trees that were using one system and leave one standing out by itself and then burn the area afterwards. Look, it was a step, the intention was good by leaving those so-called habitat trees. It was a step towards recognising that the forest is more than just wood, that there's actually species that, you know, live there and that the forest is a whole organism. So it was well intentioned. It was logic. You're right. It's it's token in, in, in in the bigger context. But I think the thing is, as you said, I mean, all of our conservation, not just in Australia but globally, has focused on flora and fauna. Mm. Even if you think about our national, our, our state piece of legislation to protect species, the Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act, where's the third F? The fungi aren't there. So yeah. the framework for how we've tried to protect biodiversity has only looked at flora and fauna. And if you look at any national park management plan, if you look at any Shire Council biodiversity strategy, they very rarely even include fungi. So everything's Mm. been about protecting that endangered orchid or that bandicoot (laughs) or whatever. But now we're starting to recognise this connectivity. And that's why I think Vol Levin's book was important and this new film, Fantastic Fungi, is important because it puts the focus back onto the networks. And fungi are just starting to find their way into these sorts of strategies. Even our national biodiversity strategy, which was a requirement of being part of the product, uh, the Kyoto Protocol, it didn't even mention fungi until a few years ago, until it was revised and we managed to get fungi in there. But Jeez. So they haven't been in the consciousness, in our, in our awareness, but it is changing and people are now seeing that the fungi are the third important and connective kingdom. So, And I think also it's about changing those negative ideas about them. I and mean, if you looked at some of the early management plans of national parks, if they mentioned fungi, it was yeah. only in the sense of them being pathogenic organisms that are a threat to this other thing called biodiversity, i.e. Mm. plants and animals. So, But I think it's changing and I'm very excited, as you said earlier, to see people come to fungi from all these different perspectives and starting yeah. to recognise, gee, if I do this in my garden, if I rake up all the leaf litter, I take all the habitat away, I remove yeah. all the food, food yeah. and I compromise every single plant in the garden. Yeah. So don't rake your leaves. Don't rake your leaves. That's the moral of the story. I feel like this is always the moral of every ecosystem chat I have. It's like, don't mow your lawn because the weeds will grow up and have flowers and feed the bees and don't, you know, spray your weeds because that'll kill the bugs and, yeah, don't rake the leaves. It's interesting. It's good. It's, it's always this battle. It's very hands-off. It is, I, I think, and, and I think it's, it's always this, I guess, battle for people between aesthetics and ecology yeah you know wanting it to look a certain way Mm. but i guess as time we challenge some of our preconceived notions about what is beauty in a garden yeah maybe a little more wild could be and seeing all those pixies parasols come up you're not going to get those without your leaf litter (laughs) exactly well it reminds me of that beautiful film the secret garden because it had been abandoned and locked up for so long and when they you know find the secret garden it is this mystical magical place Mm. with so many different things happening because it hasn't been touched by humans yeah indeed and look often there's a lot of flack against the conservation movement who are often accused of just wanting to lock up forests but i also think you know life is fundamentally symbiotic Mm. all life it's not some alternative strategy for existence all life is symbiotic but like any good relationship 
they need it needs space. So sometimes yeah. the forest does need a break, or the garden does need a break from our need to control and manage. And we always we still tend to have this narrative of the ruler and the dominator and the manager, yeah. whereas in fact you'll see more progressive conservation moving toward the steward but even beyond the steward to the participant so this notion of moving from this biblical idea that everything in nature is there for our exploitation mm. whether the rule or the dominator then moving to the idea of the steward that perhaps we need to tend and care for but even the steward sees n- nature as being outside of us even yes. we have to go even beyond that steward nature to the participant where everything we do to nature will fundamentally affect us and mm. I, even this idea of we need to protect the forest is flawed because the forest actually protects us. Yes. And I think doing that reversal actually does quite change the framework for how we consider nature and make decisions about it. Yeah, and it raises that approach that Indigenous Australians have to nature and to the country, which is that you know they're part of country and country is part of them. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And I think it's pretty much right throughout any Indigenous culture. You'll mm. see that in North America, you'll see that South America, you'll see it all over the world, I think, it's that, that, that idea of nature being inherently part of who we are and that history, that time is different, that the notions of place and space are very, very different and ownership, that ownership notion doesn't exist in the same way. Yeah, and um, one of the other elements I thought about just then because I had a chat with a fire ecologist, um, gosh, two weeks ago now, and he was talking about um, how he was kind of saddened by the extreme bushfires we saw, which were quite um, extra in terms of intensity and and Mm. catastrophic levels in some cases in terms of that heat um, and how it's affected soil. Mm. And I was wondering, do we understand how climate change and extreme bushfires affect fungi and, you know, are there some fungi that um, thrive from fire like there are some trees and then are there others that are, you know, absolutely... You know, destroyed. You're spot on. So, like animals and plants, there are those fungi that are pyrophilous or fung- fire loving that actually do respond to fire. Some fungi come up after fire. In fact, fungi are some of the first organisms to recolonise after an area has been burnt. So they're very highly adapted, but many, many fungi will be wiped out. If the fire, it's all about degree. Mm. If a fire is intense enough, long enough, Uh, covering a big enough area gets deep into the soil you're basically going to sterilize the soil so we lose not just the mycelium but also the reserve of spores the spore bank the seed bank so uh, many fungi will be wiped out and if that fire is across across a large area like it isn't sort of a patchy burn it's going to take a while for those spores to blow back in or for animals to bring those back in and so certainly some fungi are adapted but I think we really don't have any idea about the extent to which these fires are affecting fungi but I think Mm. we can assume based on the if we take I guess an approach of seeing that the plants and the animals are are largely you know catastrophically affected the fungi will be as well but you know I'm always amazed at the resilience of the Australian bush Mm. it has such capacity to regenerate but I just think over time when we have these fires more frequent, more intense, more expansive, that when that keeps happening, you you fundamentally break down the resilience of an ecosystem and its capacity to bounce back. I think when we yeah. have these repeated fires, over time you start to lose that diversity of species. And once you start to homogenise a system, you weaken it. 
So yeah. I think, you know, we, what, we, what we lose with the fungi, we lose a lot of things like the organic matter on the ground, the logs and those particular habitats that certain fungi inhabit. So I think a lot of the ways we, we use fire in management don't take fungi into consideration. And what we don't often talk about is we talk about plants as producers, animals as consumers, but the fungi are the recyclers. And if we don't have this very important process of recycling and releasing locked up nutrients in forests, again, we we lose our plant species. We yeah. lose our animals as well. So the fungi really are that. It all comes back to what you were saying. They really are that connective tissue that enable that architecture but also build the health and resilience in forests. Yeah. I'm speaking with Alison Puglio, who is a natural historian, an ecologist and an environmental photographer, and we're talking about the allure of fungi and also the conservation of fungi and the diversity of fungi in Australia and around the world. Um, I went to the University of Melbourne's herbarium and was very struck by something called a cordyceps. Ah, yes. Which was kind of scary <laughs> when I looked at it. And I was wondering if you could share with us this fascinating fungi, which has, I guess, a unique function that not all fungi have. You're absolutely right. They're a fascinating group. So a lot of fungi, I just mentioned, they're recyclers. And there's mm. those ones we talked about earlier that connect up to trees. We call these ones mycorrhizal, mycofungus rhizal root, where they actually share nutrients between the, the tree. Then there's another group that have a different way of getting their nutrition, and it's parasitism. They're parasites. Yeah. So that means they take something from their host, but they don't give anything back. And the cordyceps are a group of fungi that parasitize particular invertebrates, so spineless creatures. So it might be a caterpillar or a moth or an ant or a spider or a stick insect. And what they actually do, the mycelium moves into the body cavity of the organism. Sometimes perhaps a, maybe it might be a, like the ones you mentioned at the, the herbarium, might be a caterpillar. It's eaten a spore unintentionally. The spore is germinated. Yeah. The mycelium is formed inside the animal's digestive tract. It's fed on the, di- the food in the digestive tract and then it's fed on the, the caterpillar itself. And they mm. kill the caterpillar in the process and shoot their their sporophore or fruiting structure out through the the head of the caterpillar. So it's quite a macabre thing. But again, just coming back to Attenborough, he said Mm. something very important when he was talking about cordyceps and he was talking about this in the context of the Amazonian forests and he said the purpose of these cordyceps, other than to entertain us, (laughs) is to actually... Oh, what could I say, control or manage, stop any one invertebrate species from dominating in the forest. It keeps mm. check. I don't want to say the equilibrium or balance because those ideas are sort of out of date, but it, I guess it keeps a check on the invertebrates in the forest and it stops any one species from getting out of hand and dominating and wiping out other species. So there you go. The fungi mm. have a purpose even in their most macabre manifestations. Yeah. <laughs> and well, I think David Attenborough did a video, like a very slow motion video of Isn't it this. Superb? Yeah. yeah which you can see on YouTube and other platforms. Um, It's so fascinating to hear. Now, to talk... Uh, to finish out our discussion and to talk about um, some of the really different fungi that we may not have kind of touched on, there was one um, that's visually really striking that we were talking about off air that is featured in the 2018 State of the World's Fungi Report, which is in fact a photo that you took. Yes, it is. And what is it of and what is this fascinatingly and stunning fungi? So you're talking about the ghost fungus yeah. or Omphalodus nidifungus? 
performers and it I think it's probably again one of our most charismatic fungi because if by chance you happen to be in the forest at night and you've got your torch turned off you might see this curious green glow often around the base of trees because this fungus has this compound called luciferase it's a fantastic <laughs> name and it, it bioluminesces it emits this light from its own biochemistry and you can't see it if you've got your torch on you have to let your eyes adapt and we don't really know why it does it there's been some research to try and look at perhaps it was trying to attract a nocturnal vector like a moth or some kind of nocturnal mammal Mm. to help distribute its spores but that research shows that that actually isn't the case and so I think it's probably they light up to help the wombats find their way through the forest oh that's that's such a nice idea (laughs) so but certainly fascinating species yeah well they have that kind of a look of I guess an oyster mushroom they do you're absolutely right and they were originally categorized in that genus pleurotus the same ones we buy in the supermarket yeah and sometimes people confuse it for oyster mushrooms they eat it and it contains a very powerful emetic which means you that it tries to expel itself out of whichever orifice it can get out of faster mm. so um, <laughs> and then you start to glow this incredible green i'm only joking <laughs> <laughs> you would know because <laughs> i don't think many people would probably get the chance to see these fungi well so not many people walk in the forest at night, night but, yeah um, i guess the thing to do is try and spot them during the day so you don't slip down a wombat hole in the night <laughs> so try and actually they do look like an oyster mushroom they form yeah. these lovely big nests like nitty formers means nest forming mm. these big oyster-shaped nests, white or grey. Sometimes they can be even purplish in colour around often the bases of trees. And they're out at the moment. They're out in the Otways. It's very early in the season because we've had these rains. That's right, yeah. But commonly in pine forests, also in native bush. So they're quite a common fungus. So spot them during the day and then head back at night time. That's so cool. Mm. Um, One of the others we didn't get to touch on was lichen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I think a lot of people who, you know, see this on wood and they might live in the coast and see lichen lichen kind of drawing up nutrients yes yes. how does lichen interact and what does it look like for those who may not be aware but probably have seen it in some form yeah so lichens are the ultimate symbiosis they are a every lichen is two organisms it's an alga and a fungus living in this intimate association sometimes it's even a menage a trois there's other things in there (laughs) as well like cyanobacteria so every lichen is this combination of different organisms and they come in all these different forms so the beard lichens as the name suggests hang from brand is like these wonderful beards. Then you've got other lichens that just form this crust on rocks. You've probably yeah. seen down at the Wilson's Promontory those big orange granitic boulders and that I orange do, yeah. is actually oh. a lichen and they're often called extremophiles, lovers of the extremes. And if you think of those ones at Wilson's Promontory, they're right in the splash zone. So they're getting yes. salt water. They're getting sand-laden, abrasive winds. They're getting the guano, the droppings of seabirds. I mean, yeah. not many organisms can survive those extremes. So they're the ultimate survivors of the most extreme kinds of environments, including the Antarctic. Wow. So amazingly well adapted to extremes of solar radiation, of cold, of salt, of all all these sorts of things that few other organisms can ex- exist among. So they are fungi. They're classified as fungi because yeah. most of the organism actually is fungal. Mm, so okay. another fascinating group of the fungal kingdom. Oh, it's so cool. Um, when If people are listening and they're very excited about fungi, as possibly as excited as myself and yourself, it might be difficult, but I'm sure there are a lot of people who are excited and have, I guess, thought about 
um, fungi, but never really had a chance to see the different types in the wild in the actual places where they appear. And certainly um, the reason why you split half your time here and half your time elsewhere is that it is seasonal. How do people interact and um, get along and and maybe attend one of your workshops or um, tours to kind of get a, an up-close understanding Look, of their I'd local fungi? It's thrilled for people to come along and the best way is to get out there in the bush. I think yeah. getting out on a foray where you're seeing them in situ, seeing them in their environment is the best way. I've got various workshops running throughout Victoria and New South Wales in the next three, four months, so they're all on my website. There's also an organisation called Fungi Map, which has also that's the hub for all things fungal in Australia. But if they'd like to come along, my workshops are booking up pretty fast. Yeah. I've got various ones in the Otways, places like Forest, Apollo Bay, Gellibrand, Anglesey, Biragara. Also in central Victoria, I've got one coming up soon in Ballarat, which should be a really good wow. one just for yeah. a couple of hours. So I'd be thrilled if people would like to come along. Um, yes, exactly. And there is one next week which caught my attention uh, in Geelong. Uh, which is a seminar um, called Clandestine Trusts and Be- Trists and Benevolent Acts. Um, but there's also, yeah, as you say, Woodend, Castlemaine, um, Bonagilla, Spargo Creek, Creswick. There's so many places um, and no doubt they all have different fungi. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And a slightly different focus. So some are about how we identify fungi, some are about edible fungi, some are fungi for gardeners, looking how we encourage them in our gardens again. So each of them has a slightly different slant depending mm. on people's interests. Great. Well, if people want to know more, um, they can find out all the information at Alison Pulio, P-O-U-L-I-O-T dot com. Um, and uh, they can also look at your book, which uh, it's just it's visually beautiful, but also I think really um, written beautifully. Thanks. So yeah, it's Thank just a, a delightful read, and um, it's called The Allure of Fungi, which is out through CSIRO and came out I think a couple of years ago. That's right. Yep. Yeah, um, and I also should mention that you're here in Melbourne for another event tonight so people could even see you in person potentially. Yes, so there's a Malaysian-Norwegian author called Long Lit Wound who's going to launch her book The Way Through the Woods of Mushrooms and Morning at Reading's Bookshop tonight in Carlton. So I'll be in conversation with Wound. We'll be talking about her book and her experiences. So there's fungi everywhere, Amy. It's that all happening. so cool. <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, yeah, and we should mention that they're not just in forests, they're in urban areas too. That's so true. people in... The city living yep. here, it's still absolutely just as applicable. Every garden's got fungi in it, yep. every park, they're all there. It's so great. Alison, thank you so much for your time and just your passion and, and yeah, delight. Thanks you, Amy. And come along, come bush. <laughs> I will. I'm definitely going to have to now. And, and, yeah, I hope people, if at minimum, get to look at uh, Alison's beautiful photographs, which are really phenomenal and certainly an artwork in and of themselves. So, yeah, really thank you. Thanks, Amy. I've been speaking with Alison Puglio, who is a natural historian and ecologist and also an environmental photographer. And um, she uh, did her PhD on fungi at the ANU and um, she travels the world and Australia um, sharing her passion with everyone else and studying the very, very diverse range of fungi that the world has. And uh, I'm really delighted to have with me in the studio Nick Parry, 
who is a PhD candidate at the Australian German Climate and Energy College based at the University of Melbourne. Um, He has since submitted his PhD, so I'm gathering it's being assessed as we speak, uh, which is all very exciting. And Nick joins me because he's uh, published a number of pieces recently, one of which um, is a journal article and looks at uh, the European Union and Australia's climate change and energy policies and uh, the history of those, recent history of those, how they differ and also how it might uh, affect trade agreements and um, these kind of relations, diplomatic relations and political relations and potentially economic relations uh, between these two blocks that we probably don't really uh, consider all that often. It's, you don't often see the EU as being a really critical um, part of Australia's foreign relations strategy, but the EU is a very large uh, economic block which um, does a huge amount of uh, trade and is very powerful, certainly in the world. So I welcome Nick now and thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you to talk about this subject and also um, great because I saw your articles on the Pursuit website, uh, which is Melbourne University's own kind of research hub with op-eds and was also so fascinated by some of the subjects you've written about previously on uh, the British Conservative Party and also the Labor Party and how they had approached climate change, um, which seems to be something that Australia can often be referenced with. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's quite sane in the UK, yeah. the, uh, the, the climate debate relative to Australia, of course. And I think people who perhaps don't have an understanding of how the UK climate politics has unfolded would be quite surprised. Uh, particularly given that the Conservative Party has been one of the drivers of a very ambitious climate policy, which is obviously quite the opposite to Australia. Yeah. So even going back to Margaret Thatcher, uh, in the early 90s, she gave uh, a number of very strong speeches on, on climate change. I think before she died, she became a climate sceptic, but <laughs> whilst in power, she did implement uh, so, or initiated a number of, uh, of policies. Mm. Uh, but there was a particular change in the UK from about 2005 onwards uh, when David Cameron became the opposition leader. Uh, and you then had sort of party competition between uh, between the Labor and Conservative parties. Uh, the Labor Party under Blair was actually in danger of being outflanked by both the Conservatives and, and the Greens, uh, which also drove greater ambition amongst, uh, amongst the, the Labor government at the time. Mm. So a, a very, very different situation to what we have in, in Australia where you've got two parties who are fundamentally opposed. Uh, in, in the UK, you've actually got very broad agreement on, on the fact that climate change is real. Uh, and that uh, we need to take very serious action. Mm. And um, thinking about the the British-UK Labor Party, uh, clearly coal mining was a very important part of Britain a number of decades ago and uh, we saw some, you know, really serious... um, kind of disasters happen, one in Wales, um, I recall, a number of decades ago. And so coal and coal mining was a part of Britain at one point. It's not like they did not have that kind of legacy um, of coal. Australia has clearly a legacy of coal too. Some might say it's on a different scale, but what what is your understanding of, of Britain's legacy of and potentially even Germany's legacy of coal mining compared with ours? Yeah, look, if you're going to compare the UK with Australia, you have to recognise that Australia is, uh, I think, the world's largest exporter of coal and, and of natural gas, whereas 
The UK, which was once described as an island of coal on a sea of gas, uh, <laughs> that's no longer the case. Yeah. Uh, when Thatcher smashed the uh, the coal unions in the early 80s, uh, coal mining had already been in decline for probably two decades. Mm. And even gas, the UK has some significant gas reserves in the, in the North Sea, but uh, they're a net importer of gas and have been since 2005. So you have to recognise that there are very different politics in relation to, to coal and, and natural resources. It's still very important to Australia. It's still very influential in our politics. Yeah. Whereas the UK have been able to transition away from uh, coal and, and more recently gas because uh, they just don't have those natural resources. So you don't have mm. the influence in politics. And what about Germany? Because I know that they've they announced um, nuclear energy was you know going to be transitioned away um, from and also that they have also had that relationship with coal mining and open cut mines and kind of above ground mining mining as well as some of the underground mines what's that their experience been like yeah so again germany does not have the the coal resources that we have Mm. uh, but there are pockets particularly in the east of the country and parts of the country that are perhaps economically depressed uh, so it is still very, very important. And uh, what you actually saw in Germany, they have a very um, significant policy, the Energiewende, which is this energy transition plan, uh, where they're obviously transitioning away from uh, from fossil fuels. It actually, the policy actually started as an anti-nuclear policy in the 1980s. Uh, so there's always been this sort of anti-nuclear um, sentiment in, in German politics. Um so they announced the shutdown of, of nuclear after Fukushima disaster in, in Japan. And what you actually saw was uh, coal actually increased very, very slightly and, and, and emissions and electricity actually uh, plateaued or even increased very slightly in, in Germany uh, because they were still depending on coal. But what Germany has done now is implement the Coal Commission. So they're now uh, implementing a managed shutdown of, of the coal industry uh, over the next, uh, I think it's out to 2038, uh, so this is probably very typical of Germany to have a very long-term <laughs> and very structured plan, but it's, it's a plan that it, it involves workers, it involves uh, the energy businesses, and involves policymakers as well. They get them all together and they actually look at, okay, what are the implications for, for workers, what are the implications for energy supply, and, uh, and they're able to manage that. Whereas obviously in Australia, it's, um, we're still assuming that coal is going to have a role well out to 2050, which yeah. if you take the Paris Agreement seriously, it absolutely will not. Mm. Uh, and so we, I think we can learn a lot from, from Germany, in, in particular the way they're managing this, uh, this transition. It's not without its problems. It's not perfect, obviously. Uh, but at least they're taking the, that that problem very seriously. Yes. Well, we did see uh, the Labor leader, Anthony Albanese, over the weekend get asked about coal and Australia's export of coal and whether we might still be exporting our own coal in 2050, and to which he said yes, which is kind of surprising, as you've probably just referenced and shown why it is really, really quite surprising. Um there is this, uh, I guess, cognitive dissonance between uh, we want to act on climate change in some of these parties, I'm not going to say all, um, where you know there is this commitment and we've seen a, an announcement from Labor about having a net zero target um, on carbon emissions by 2050, but then a, a real kind of denial potentially, soft denial of how we get there and the fact that coal can't really play a role if we wanted to reach the target that we've set? Yeah, that's, I mean, oh, the Labor Party doesn't know what it wants to do at the moment, which is somewhat yeah. understandable given they've just lost an election, mm. which was which was billed as the, the climate election. So they're certainly being uh, hammered on, on their, their policy. But yeah, there's a, there's a real inconsistency there because 
Australia has signed up to the Paris Agreement, which commits uh, signatories to keeping global warming to well below two degrees by 2050, uh, by the end of the century. That requires decarbonisation by 2050. That means you're not using coal anymore. And yet the Labor Party sort of wants to walk both sides of the street. They want to say, mm-hmm. yes, there's still a role for this industry in, in this country. But they've got to be real. They've, they've, they've actually got to talk to the people who are affected, the people who are going to lose their jobs and actually manage this transition because yeah. it's inevitable. Mm. And as you've just shown there, it has been done in Germany that that kind of collaborative, open, um, direct approach of making sure that every group of affected people are involved in this policy, it seems like it's something that's pretty vital to actually making it a success. Yeah, absolutely it is, yeah. And... Look, if you look at the economy-wide implications of the transition, there are lots and lots of opportunities. And when you look back at any great transition, you know, perhaps horse and cart to the automobile, no one talks about all the job losses in, in you know, horse cart making. They, they talk about mm. uh, what, what a great technological revolution it was. And, and we'll talk about the energy transition in the same way. But you also have to recognise that there are individual workers and individual communities who are going to suffer. You know, I personally, I actually used to work in the automotive industry and I watched that decline in this country and I watched people lose their jobs, uh, high-paying, unionised jobs. Uh, and so, you know, as people who, who are great proponents of, of ambitious climate policy, we have to recognise that these communities uh, will be affected. Um, but if that's the case and you also have the reality of decarbonising our economy, then you have to manage that transition as, as best you can. You can't get to 2035 or 2040 and suddenly have a whole heap of job losses and no. and let these people suffer. You have to explain the reality of the situation to them, and that, that's what's happening in Germany. Explain the reality, bring them along and, and, and include them in, in that process, and you'll have a much, a much smoother transition, I think. Yeah, and in your article, um, which uh, has been recently published, <clears throat> excuse me, you go through the history um, of the EU and Australia's climate interactions with these international agreements. Mm-hmm. And um, you highlight the Kyoto Protocol uh, as being the first international treaty for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, which, of course, was in 1997. And it's nice to, I guess, be reminded what Australia was doing in the Kyoto Protocol negotiations because sometimes we forget. Um, and I was interested in the the um, line you wrote about Australia being regarded as a major obstacle to the agreement, exploiting the need for consensus to hold out for preferential treatment, which seems like we haven't really changed our behaviour all that much when we talk about carryover credits, which are also relating to the Kyoto Protocol. Um, but what did we end up negotiating in Kyoto that has since had ongoing effects for all of our subsequent targets and our subsequent international agreements. Yeah, so the, the Kyoto pre- Protocol uh, was obviously aimed at reducing emissions amongst industrialised countries. And uh, so the EU agreed to an 8% reduction. The US, I think, was was 7 or 8. All industrial uh, countries agreed to some sort of reduction. Australia held out. Famously, they held out and said, uh, no, we're very dependent on resources, et cetera, mm. et cetera. And Australia ended up winning an exception. They ended up uh, being allowed to increase uh, emissions by about 8%, I think, uh, on, on 1990 levels. So um, I think uh, there was an EU commissioner who said that Australia had gotten away with it. I mean, the EU at the time was was quite furious with Australia's actions, but Australia was seen as quite small and mm. uh, they didn't want the 
agreement to falter uh, because of Australia's veto. So the agreement was signed. Australia got this uh, essentially a concession. Now, all these years later, uh, having won that concession, we're now trying to use that again by using these these carryover credits. So essentially what we're saying is, well, we, we had a soft target with Kyoto. We achieved that soft target. And now we're going to take those credits from that agreement and apply it to the Paris Agreement. Uh, that is causing uh, you know, quite a bit of angst amongst uh, uh, EU negotiators in particular, and uh, it, it's something that's been raised uh, in, in recent uh, recent months in particular. Yes. Well, is it any wonder, I guess, when there's such a big double standard and Australia is a very rich and wealthy nation and, of course, we do have a dependency on resources and we had the mining boom um, really run our economy for a very long time and have we had that reliance, I guess, on that, that sector mm-hmm. um, as well as manufacturing, which has since uh, slowly died. But it's interesting to see how um, the European Union has been approaching climate change, both historically, but how it's also progressed the issue. I mean, a lot of people might think it's difficult uh, with a block of such a large number of European countries of very different political persuasions coming together and actually agreeing on some particularly progressive and radical changes. Um, we just did see an announcement of a European Green Deal, which some people criticise and say doesn't go far enough and then others say is is a good starting point. What um, is your understanding of how the EU has developed its climate policy in that time from Kyoto to present day? You know, the EU's always been quite progressive and certainly a leader in global climate politics. Uh, it, it took the most uh, significant emissions reduction target to Kyoto and then when the US failed to ratify it, it, it worked very, very hard to get Russia over the line to ensure that the, uh, the, uh, the agreement came into effect. Uh, again, at uh, in, in 2009 at Copenhagen, they, they took a very uh, ambitious target. Um, that Those talks failed because of China and the US, but then the EU worked very hard behind the scenes to ensure that uh, the US and China came to an agreement before uh, the negotiations at Paris. So a year before that, China and the US uh, came to an agreement, which signaled to everyone else that, that, uh, that they were very serious about climate action. So the EU has always played a very important diplomatic role and, and, and a leadership role as well. It's Again, it's, it's not always perfect. So you mentioned the uh, the Green Deal that, that has been announced, um, but the EU is trying to negotiate a net zero target for 2050. They were hoping to finalise it by the end of last year, but it's being held up by Poland. So Poland is still very dependent upon uh, coal, much as Australia is. So yeah. when you talk about that need for consensus amongst what is now 27 member states... Um, Normally, uh, the, the sort of there's enough pressure from other member states. There's enough negotiating behind the scenes uh, to reach an agreement. At this stage, they haven't reached the agreement. Mm. But that that green deal that they've announced, part of that is, is essentially uh, an incentive for Poland to come on board. Uh, they haven't yet done that. They're, they're looking for more money. Uh, but eventually, I'm, I'm sure that, that Poland will agree with the right amount of uh, in- incentives and the, and the right amount of uh, EU funds to, to smooth the transition in, in Poland. Mm. And then they'll have a, a 2050 target, hopefully. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm sorry if people think I'm laughing. I was just thinking about <clears throat> a previous conversation I had where um, Poland was taken to court uh, by client earth around the primeval forests that they also did not want to protect and they were 
one of the oldest forests in the world that were untouched. So um, Poland has some ongoing environmental issues domestically as well as uh, politically at the EU level that come to mind. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to compare Australia... Certainly the UK, we're very similar in, in, in terms of our politics and our, and our outlook, but in terms of our dependence on coal and how that influences our, our climate policies, Poland is probably a very interesting uh, comparative case study. Mm, that is really interesting. Um, I hope that's in the works, maybe. <laughs> be very, very fascinating. Um, so in terms of the Green Deal that has been announced, I, I think I'd like to understand it a bit better because we've seen uh, people like Bernie Sanders advocate for a Green New Deal in America. We've seen people domestically here like Adam Bant talk about a Green New Deal. This is not um, just isolated to one area of the world what does the european idea or iteration of a green deal look like yeah it's it's actually interesting how fast this idea has, has taken hold and 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 spread and it does show the the potential for climate policy the big ideas in, in climate politics to uh to spread um but yeah so if you, if you look at the uh, the eu in particular a, a new european commission was elected uh in uh, november of last year uh and Obviously, the, the commission to, to be approved by the European Parliament has to make lots of concessions to lots of different people. And uh, one of them, uh, to the, the Greens Party, I suppose, but also to those, those eastern states who are, who are very dependent on, on coal still, uh, was this, this idea of a, of a Green Deal. Uh, so this is you know, putting a lot of um, uh, public funding, European public funding and leveraging private funding as well, into the uh, the transition, particularly in the energy sector, uh, away from fossil fuels. Obviously, you're going to see a lot of transfers from from Western Europe to, to Eastern Europe to smooth that uh, that, that transition. Um, as I said, not a perfect policy, not a perfect announcement by by any stretch, but certainly very significant that this idea that's probably only two or three years old uh, is is now being adopted by the European Commission and being proposed as a very, very serious policy over the next seven years. Yeah, and the really, I guess, unique part about that is that it is encompassing so many parts of policy areas. It's, um, It's not just environment as a separate you know, category, policy category that we're going to work on. It's the fact and recognising the fact that economics and social policy um, and other areas of policy are all drawn up and brought up into this issue of reducing carbon emissions and um, protecting the environment. Yeah, this is this is such a complex problem, climate change and the energy transition. You, you cannot address it, uh, you know, through one ministry or one directorate in, in the EU's case. You have to incorporate all of these different perspectives, um, you know, the social, the economic, the legal and the technical, obviously. And, and, and the EU, again, it, it's not perfect and, and often uh, economics will trump uh, climate change as it does in, in every single country. But, you know, certainly relative to Australia, they're much better at incorporating all these considerations into their policy. Mm. And um, what is particularly interesting is the fact that, and I'm sure some many listeners would have a a good enough memory to remember that Australia had an emissions trading scheme or at least a a kind of one um, or some what was characterised as a carbon tax, which wasn't really. Um, The EU has an emissions trading scheme and it's had one uh, for 15 years, Mm -hmm. which is phenomenal. How has that 
trading scheme worked um, in the EU. And, uh, and I note from your piece that you said it was actually intended to link up with the Australian carbon price in 2018. That's right, yeah. So it was the first international emissions trading system. It was launched in 2005 in Europe. Um, and for a very long time, it didn't work. Uh, it, the mechanism was fine, but because of you know, these political uh, negotiations, there were too many concessions, essentially. And, uh, and the ETS had very little effect uh, for, for most of its life. But it's gone through a series of reforms uh, recently. So essentially, they've put a, sort of a number of cap on the, on the number of permits that are allowed in the market. And that has sent a very clear signal to the, uh, to the market. So it is starting to work now. So where you had uh, carbon prices at between zero and five euro, they've now hit about uh, 25 euro, which is about 40 Australian dollars. Uh, and it, it's really starting to have an effect. Now, Australia, when it proposed its own ETS, uh, said they were to link to the, uh, the European scheme uh, by 2018. Mm-hmm. We all know the history of, uh, of what <laughs> happened there in this country. It never, never happened. Um, and I think that's a missed opportunity uh, for Australia. We had, you know, quite significant opportunities for, for carbon abatement. We could have tapped into that international market and you could have, we could have had uh, farmers in this country making, you know, reasonable amounts of money from that, uh, that, that carbon market. It didn't happen, lost opportunity. Yes, and the emissions trading scheme or the carbon price, um, the price on carbon, so many ways to describe it, in Australia uh, was shown to be effective in reducing emissions and I've seen a number of graphs where you see this great uh, reduction and then a very steep change when we uh, removed this Mm -hmm. policy. Um, In terms of Australia's current policy um, or default policy it's hard to explain i guess what our position is but what where are we at in terms of our approach to reducing carbon emissions if we don't have a price on carbon in australia yeah i mean carbon price is often seen by economists as the best option um obviously we uh rescinded our carbon price very unlikely it's going to come back in in the near future potentially it will uh, some some way down the path so we really don't have a, a federal emissions reduction policy at the moment. The emissions reduction fund is um, not a particularly effective uh, policy. It's, it's a very expensive way of, of achieving carbon abatement. Um, and I, I just don't see how we're going to drive emissions down there. Uh, our emissions fell, I think, in, in the most recent quarter, primarily due to the drought, which, which drew agricultural um, emissions down. We're, we're increasing our uh, renewable energy, which is bringing our energy emissions down very, very slightly, but none of that is really being driven by federal policy. Mm. If if you're looking for some hope, and I always am, yes. and you have to in this game, uh, then you, you know, at the state level, there's there's quite significant activity. So each state and territory in Australia now has a net zero target for 2050. They don't necessarily have 2030 targets, which are which are essential, you mm. know, on that pathway to 2050, but. That's actually something that we have that, that Europe doesn't have, or the EU doesn't have quite yet. Lots of uh, European countries do have it, but we, we don't at the moment. So th- there is some optimism, I think, at the state level with, with strong um, renewable energy targets, for instance, and, and, and 2050 targets, that most of the, uh, the emissions reductions will occur at that, that level. But obviously you can't uh, achieve the, the decarbonisation of your economy without a federal policy, and that's what we're lacking at the moment. Yes, exactly. And the interesting element is that there are not just Labor states, uh, state government, but obviously coalition governments 
having a 2050 net zero policy mm. at the state level. Yeah, well, the, as I say, lots of people that our climate politics at the federal level is actually not normal. And, and perhaps we've accepted it as normal. We just assume that, you know, the conservative parties are opposed to climate action. Uh, when in reality, it's a sort of a small rump of the, of the coalition government. Uh, conservatives in Europe, you know, in, in Germany and the UK, as I mentioned, they're the ones who have driven really strong climate action. And they, and they see protection of the environment as part of that, that conservative tradition. You even see that in, in New South Wales, in, in, in Australia, uh, to some extent in other states and, and territories as well. But it's not necessarily normal for a conservative party just to oppose um, climate action. Um, in, in lots of places in the world, Australia is an exception, obviously the US is an exception, but in most places... In Europe, conservative parties are very strong on, on climate ambition. Mm. And when we've been looking at um, EU and Australia relations, one of the uh, things that have come up in the news recently was um, the EU... Did they pass legislation about um, how they, I guess, conduct trade with other nations and how climate change is a factor in those relations and negotiations? Yeah, there's no, no legislation at this stage, but... It, it, it's something that's um, being mentioned more and more. And, and it's Australia began negotiations with the EU about 18 months ago, which in itself was really significant because yeah. EU-Australia relations have always been shaped by this antagonism over agriculture. So we finally seem to have gotten over that. We've, we've started these uh, negotiations um, and they're, they're sort of progressing quite nicely. But there's been a very noticeable shift in the EU's attitudes towards Australia in relation to, to climate change uh, in recent years. Um, the, the FTA negotiations are one trigger. Uh, our behaviour at the, at the recent um, uh, COP meeting, where we essentially insisted that we're going to use these carryover credits from, from Kyoto, and we essentially held up the agreement along with Brazil and, and, and Russia. Our, our behaviour wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't regarded very highly, certainly by our, our um, EU partners. And then, obviously, the bushfires had an effect as well. It's amazing how many mm. people from Europe uh, were emailing me about the bushfires. What's happening in Australia? This is the first time that they've seen Australia on the news in five years, and yeah. it's all about, all about climate change. So increasingly, you're seeing EU policymakers uh, talk about including a very strong provision on, on the Paris Agreement in these uh, FTA negotiations, and that could be very bad for Australia. Uh, it, it depends on how hard they, they, they push it. And it depends on whether it, it, it can be included. You know, there's a, a lot to run yet, uh, but it, it is very interesting that uh, that's being mentioned so often. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Um, it wouldn't be as notable if Australia was on track to meet its Paris climate targets. And uh, in Parliament, we've seen some discussion about um, climate change more recently with Zali Stegel, one of the independent MPs, raising a bill and also uh, asking uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison about climate change and the cost of inaction. And she highlighted that Australia is more likely or is on track to um, make three degrees warming rather than the Paris target, which is substantially less than three degrees, is really catastrophic. Um, With this discussion that we are having about the cost of action versus the cost of inaction, I mean, to some people and observers, it seems like a rather ridiculous conversation because it requires a huge amount of crystal ball gazing out to decades 
um, and an understanding flow on effects and interrelations between sectors that we may not fully understand. But how, how do you approach that dichotomy or that argument that's set up and that has been playing out in our federal politics about the cost and, um, where, uh, and whether we can tell what the cost is and um, whether it's more beneficial economically to act or not act? Yeah, this is, again, an interesting comparison with the EU where the, the debate is always framed around opportunities. Uh, and again, because they're a net energy importer, so they're dependent on, on imports of their energy, there's obviously an incentive uh, to transition away from, from those imported fossil fuels. But mm. whenever you read about climate policy in, in the EU from the official documents, it's always about these are the opportunities in terms of jobs, in terms of innovation, in terms of export. And as a comment, you know, they've got more patents in renewable energy than any other country. The rates of deployment are, are higher. Perhaps China has caught up recently. But there's real progress. Whereas in Australia, we talk about costs. We're always talking about costs. Mm. We never consider what the opportunities are. And we never consider what the costs of inaction are. What does Australia look like at three degrees? It's, mm-hmm. it's pretty horrible. You know, this is the driest inhabited continent on, on the planet and, and you know climate change is going to kick us in the backside you know harder than any other country I think in fact there was a report I think uh, from from Tom Compass at uh, University of Melbourne recently which suggests the co- the ratio of, of cost of inaction is 20 to one uh, which is extraordinary yeah, you know that, that is massive yeah and and you know we just don't understand that we, we, we're still looking at sort of two or three year time frames rather than 50 year time frames mm. and, and the consequence and the costs of that Yes, and that uh, conservative risk-averse approach and also a status quo approach really is um, it's not just applied to climate change, it's applied to other areas of economic transformation where we're assuming that resources and other parts of the sector are still going to power us along enough to minusculely grow our economy um, where people have been saying for a very long time that we need to diversify the economy and to, as you've just said, uh, look at the opportunity which would be around science and research and development and innovation um, because Australia was a pioneer in some of the early uh, elements of renewable energy and solar power in particular. Where are some of those, the greatest opportunities for Australia in terms of renewable energy and being part of that intellectual um, element? Yeah, well, I mean, we obviously have great research institutions in in this country, great scientists, so there's great opportunity there. Um, We have some of the best solar and wind resources in the world, Uh, absolutely abundant sun and wind, uh, Mm. and we could be utilising that. And and sort of the the buzz at the moment is around hydrogen uh, and and the potential to create green hydrogen using excess renewable energy, which is – and we had a symposium with some German policymakers last year, and I can't quite remember the figures, but they were astronomical. The amount of hydrogen that they're going to require uh, to decarbonise their energy system and they're looking to Australia to produce that. So this is a huge export opportunity. We, we're starting to talk about it a, a little bit, but it's something that we could be exploiting. But yeah. as I said, we, our politics can't get past coal and, and gas. And, and the reality is the world is going to turn off those those products. Again, if, if we take those Paris uh, targets seriously, the market for those is going to fall out and, mm. and we're going to be stuck uh, trying to produce something that no one wants. Uh, if we don't manage this transition over a sort of 30-year period. Yeah, yeah. Um, Nick, just finally, before we have to to go, in terms of what's next for the EU, um, what is 
going to what's on the horizon for the EU? And I've noticed a growth in um, offshore wind power as being one of those elements. But what what does that look like for the European Union in terms of renewable energy and changing their economy? Yeah, well, so the, the EU has, has always been more progressive than, than any other country in the world or any other bloc, obviously. Uh, and they've they've met and they've beaten their targets genuinely, not like Australia where we use these carryover credits and, and use these little cheats. But uh, and and so if you look at that, that they set ten uh, year targets. So they've got twenty twenty targets which they're going to meet. Twenty thirty, uh, they're increasing the ambition of those from emissions reduction target of forty to fifty five percent. And then they're negotiating the the net fifty uh, the net zero uh, target by twenty fifty. So mm. I, I think they're they're very very serious about that uh, that that transition. Uh, they will likely decarbonise their uh, energy system much earlier than certainly Australia and other major economies. So that that can potentially create opportunities for a country like Australia. Um, at the moment, we don't recognise those opportunities and, and we're not exploiting them. Yeah. Um, Nick, it's been very illuminating to speak with you about this and I'm so glad that I have a, a greater understanding now of the European Union and its role in the global um, climate change talks and, I guess, policy progression. Um, it's clear that we wouldn't be here without them, really, um, as, a, as a whole global community. Yeah, yeah. If I can finish, yes, too, by yeah. uh, just giving a plug to the Climate College where I work. So we're very, very big on making our research accessible to, to the wider public, so we hold a weekly seminar, seminar series. Yep. yep. Uh, and so if you're interested in learning about anything about climate and energy, we, we cover a range of uh, topics, normally held at Wednesday at 11am, but check out our website or our Twitter feed uh, and, and uh, you can access uh, either uh, be there in person, uh, webinar, or what now uh, the videos uh, once the seminars are finished. Excellent. And you can actually sign up to their newsletter and get notified when there are new seminars as well if yes. you want that. Correct. Uh, thank you so much, Nick, and uh, congratulations on finishing your PhD. Thank you. Look forward to what else you p- put out. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm relaxing at the moment, I <laughs> yeah, can assure you. Yeah, have a little break. <laughs> I've been speaking with Nick Parry, who is a PhD candidate, just completed his PhD, um, and is based at the Australian-German Climate and Energy College, based at the University of Melbourne. And as you heard there, there are a number of seminars that are open to the public on a weekly basis about climate change and energy, which is really fantastic. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.